Cashflow Ninja, Episode 5 with Frank Rolf. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Now, here is your host, MC Laubscher. Hello everyone, MC Lobs here. Thank you for joining me for today's show. As you are aware, the purpose of our podcast is to bring on guests that will share ideas on how to generate income and manage, grow, and protect your wealth in the new economy. I wanted to expose our listeners to as many ideas as possible, with the outcome being that you will start to see a world of opportunities all around you, everywhere you look, even in areas that you never thought of before. I also wanted to challenge some of your existing beliefs on certain concepts and topics. I think today's show is going to do just that and introduce you to an area of investing in business that you probably know exists but already have a preconceived view or opinion about. I'm sure most of us have driven past outdoor billboards, mobile home parks, RV parks, and self-storage units and have never looked at these as vehicles to create monthly income streams. Some of these vehicles, like mobile home parks, have a very bad stigma with most people, and the media have created a less than favorable view of mobile home parks and their tenants. These investment vehicles and businesses are not the sexiest of vehicles, but I think that you will find today's interview extremely interesting and intriguing. My guest today is Frank Rolf. Frank has been a commercial real estate investor for over 30 years, having owned and operated billboards, mobile home parks, RV parks, self-storage units, apartments, retail, duplex, office, and commercial properties during that time. But he is best known for two achievements. His first success was in the billboard industry, in which he built from scratch the largest privately owned billboard company in Dallas, Fort Worth, as well as the second company in Los Angeles, California. He then sold these assets to a public company in 1996 for $5.8 million. His second achievement began shortly thereafter when he started buying mobile home parks. He is now the sixth largest owner of mobile home parks in the U.S., along with his partner, Dave Reynolds. And he owns over 170 mobile home parks in 20 states. Frank holds a BA in economics from Stanford University and is a well-known speaker and writer on the commercial real estate industry. Just a reminder that you can find all of our past shows, show notes, recommended resources, and join our community at CashflowNinja.com. We'll post today's show notes at CashflowNinja.com forward slash 005 with all the links to resources discussed during today's episode. During the first two months of our podcast, we're giving away a $500 Visa gift card. All you have to do to get entered into the drawing is go to CashflowNinja.com forward slash iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Please help us spread the word of our show. If you feel that our show has provided valuable content and information, please share it with family, friends, and anyone that you feel will enjoy it. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to the Cashflow Ninja Podcast with your host, MC Lobsher. You must be prepared to ignite. Frank, thank you so much for joining me today. You bet. Thanks, MC, for having me. Please share a little bit about your background and how you got started in the billboard industry and your transition into the mobile home park industry. 
Sure. Uh, what happened was I went to Stanford and I got a degree in economics, and then I was going to go to business school. And back then, we're talking in the late 70s, early 80s, a good business school application would include t- traditionally you starting your own business and then writing about how it went. So I got out. I got out a year ahead of my class. I had a year to kill, so I wanted to, to do that for my business school application. So I started a billboard company. I had no idea what it even meant. An adult threw that idea out to me as a business you could start and then liquidate within one year. So I started this business with no prior knowledge, spent a year getting nowhere with it. And then towards the end of the year, I suddenly got three billboards. And I thought, okay, well, wasn't really a great story till now. So I'll go one more year and then I'll do my application. So I went one more year. At the end of the second year, I had 10 billboards. And then in the interim, I got Pondering Life and I was theoretically making more money on the billboards than I would at business school. So I just kept on with it. Fast forward 14 years, I was up to 300 billboards and I sold out to a public company in 1996. And then I uh, started buying mobile home parks after that. I've been buying mobile home parks ever since. I've been doing that for almost 20 years now. But that's kind of how, how it happened. The way I got in the mobile home park business, which is a weird uh, way to show shows you how life can be so random. I had built two billboards on a mobile home park in Dallas called Glenhaven. And when I called the guy at Glenhaven when I was looking for a new business to get into after selling off the billboards, he said to me, I'll make you a deal you can't refuse for you to buy this park so you don't have to look any further. And he offered me the park for $400,000 with $10,000 down, $390,000 seller finance note non-recourse for 30 years. And so that's how I got in it. It was literally that random. He made me an amazing offer and I took him up on it and I've been doing it ever since. Very interesting. Now, mobile home parks have a very bad stigma with many people. Can you share um, why you chose this real estate niche? Sure. Well, it, it had a very bad connotations with me as well. I mean, I, I had never been in a mobile home park in my entire life, except when I built those two billboards. And I thought everybody in there was a drug addict and a hooker and a just the scum of the earth. And I was exactly correct in that first park. That is what I had. But I later came to find out the reason the park was like that was poor management and that if you used your head, you could actually have a, a better product, namely, again, something that houses people who are basically poor, but they could be clean and safe and nice looking. People don't realize mobile home park is a very big niche. There's about 44,000 parks in the U.S. and about 8% of all Americans live in mobile homes. It's just the, the stuff we see in the media is like the show Cops, Jeff Foxworthy, Myrtle Manor. So we all think bad things about it because we really don't know what we're, what we're doing. But I was just like anybody else. I was terrified of the thing. When you think about tenants in mobile home parks, um, you know, people visualize kind of the, the character of the cousin Eddie from National Lampoon's movies. Exactly um, correct. Yeah. So they immediately think of management challenges that they might face, you know, such as collecting rent and dealing with other tenant, tenant issues. But as you stated, there's, there's a lot of different other folks, too. Can you break down uh, some more of the stigma that people have about these tenants? Well, yeah. You know, when I got my first part, the very first thing I did was I got a concealed handgun license because I felt unsafe being in the park without a gun. I realized after I'd been there about a month, I really didn't need the gun, that kind of I had this prejudice I developed myself that really wasn't accurate. You know, just, just because you don't have a high income does not make you dangerous. It does not make you stupid. All right. I mean... You know, I think since Obama took office over the last nearly eight years, and ever since the great mortgage uh, crisis in 2007, about half of every job created in the U.S. is minimum wage. The, the real story is that our country 
economically is not doing very good and we don't make high paying jobs anymore and people are having to learn live on less money and when you're living on less money like let's say you earn minimum wage the only options you have are a mobile home and a mobile home park or a class c apartment which the mobile home park is far nicer right so there is you know where do you find the worst people economically living to me in in the, in the really downscale apartment complexes all right or with their grandparents so people we have are definitely up a notch they've got jobs they they have incomes they have families they have the same aspirations that for their kids that you and I have of living in a good school district and going to college so basically they're just like you and me they just have lower income but it right. it, it, it doesn't make them people that you have to avoid or you can't build a business around so but but you'll you, you know mobile home parks are unique because in most cases the park resident owns their own home and we just own the land and as a result they're, they're a stakeholder in the business as much as we are we each own something but i but the good part is i don't have to mess with their home see that that's that's what separates us from the downscale apartment guys with the same customer because i don't have to get into their personal life i don't have to fix what goes on in their home i i just own the land and they rent land from me and that's that's why mobile home park works so well as a asset is I don't have to get involved in their life. While researching mobile home park investing, I noticed that there are parks where all of the homes are owned by the tenants. Somewhere the park owns 100% of the homes and some of a mix of tenant-owned homes and park-owned homes. What type of park would you advise the newbie investor in this niche to start with? Well, you, you can never be in the park business and, and be afraid of uh, owning homes because you're going to because the lady at lot 40 is going to die and you're going to buy that home from her estate for a hundred bucks. You know, in the perfect world, you would not own any of the homes. In a realistic world, the park, the typical park you buy is going to come with a handful, maybe two, maybe five. Where you where you got to be careful is, is on the parks where it's 100% park-owned homes because right. what, what do you have then? You've actually got what I call a detached apartment complex. And even though you then try and make those people homeowners again by selling them the homes, and that can take a long time. And there's a, you're still going to have a lot of rehab work to get the homes where they're ready for sale. If you're looking for a park, you definitely want to gear yourself towards one that just has a few homes. I mean, a few homes is okay, but if you're in a 60-space park with 58 park-owned homes, that's probably not okay. How does the utilities and the water work with regards to the park? Well, you know, typically our number one job as a park owner is staying on top of water sewer. That's our single largest cost item on our expense statement. And you'll find in many, many parks today, park owners have already sub-metered and already billed that water sewer back to the tenant. So that, right. that, that conversion's been going on now for at least probably 10 to 20 years. You buy a park and the tenant is not paying their own water sewer, you pretty much want to get that back on them because without that, there's no conservation. So if you limited water, you can just go crazy. And you can go in parks with unlimited water and you'll see water shooting everywhere. I mean, everybody leaves their, their hose on all night outside and it's a disaster so you know for the, for the sake of conservation you pretty much have to make people pay for what they use our mobile home parks finance from my understanding it's different than financing a single family home and multi-family properties as well as apartment buildings yeah, it, it is but yet it isn't it's uh, the banks love mobile home park loans that's another stigma with which it is reversed what they found is mobile home parks had the lowest default rate of any form of real estate even lower than single-family home. So what happens is the banks love mobile home parks. They don't advertise it, but we, we do loans today with every bank you can name. Well, Wells Fargo, City, Citibank, U.S. Bank, it doesn't matter. We do them all. 
And our our number our number one source of financing, believe it or not, is seller finance. So most, most mobile home parks begin life with a seller finance note, and it's it's a win win because the seller. I mean, right now, if I gave a seller cash for a park, they're going to get a one percent rate of return on a CD, whereas we pay five or six percent. So right. it, it actually is it's a win win for everybody. You have written content on mom and pop ownership of these mobile home parks, and how there's a window of opportunity currently with the mom-and-pop owners transferring ownership of these parks to investors. Can you speak about this trend? Sure. You know, the mobile home park industry is the second youngest real estate class. The youngest is self-storage, right? There's about a 10 10 to 20-year differentiation between mobile home parks and self-storage. But self-storage is already three times more assimilated than mobile home parks are. So we are the most fragmented section of real estate in existence. Now, we, we will not always remain fragmented. I mean, self-storage was nothing more than, you know, everybody in self-storage in the early days owned just one unit. And then came public storage at Uncle Bob's, and they started buying up everything. We we have not had yet that big assimilator. Our, our largest owner in the industry is uh, Equity Lifestyle. It's a Sam Zell's company. They own about 160,000 lots. But if you add up right. the top 100 owners, of which you know we're the sixth largest in the U.S. at, at 17,000 lots, if you add all of us up together, we don't account for more than about 4,000 of the 44,000 mobile home parks. So we are we are a wild industry because right now we're still owned by far majority by moms and pops. And you know the opportunity on that is these moms and pops are all biologically getting really old. A lot of these guys are. Really War II and Korean War veterans. And so that, that opportunity won't last forever because eventually they're all going to die out. I've noticed that there are some big institutional investors and famous investors becoming involved in mobile park homes, such as a Chicago real estate mogul whom you mentioned, Sam Zell, the man who sold off his real estate holdings just before the housing crash in 2008, and Warren Buffett that bought Clayton Homes, one of America's largest mobile home conglomerates. How competitive is this niche? Are there certain parks, size, location, etc. that are less competitive? Won't compete with Warren Buffett because Clayton Homes does not own any parks. Buffett bought them back in 2003, and he is now the largest owner of manufacturing and mobile home financing in America. But but it's still an important item because he wouldn't be involved in it if he didn't think it had a pretty good future, right? He doesn't typically buy into dying industries or things that don't make any money. You know, if you're starting out, what you'd want to do is first you have to figure out a couple things. First, how much money you have for a down payment. You take that number, multiply that roughly times five, and that's dollar figure of how much park you can buy. And then traditionally, you take that number and divide that by about twenty thousand, and that tells you how many lots park would traditionally have. So let's just do that in midair. If you've got, you know. $200,000 in cash, that would buy you times five, a $1 million park, which divided by 20000 means you're looking at about a 50-space park. And that varies all over America. That might get you also a 100-space park in the South, and it might only get you a 10-space park in Los Angeles. The other thing most people will have to do is they, for most people to buy their first property, it doesn't matter if it's mobile home park, office, or what it is, they want to be able to drive there and back in a day. I would say you would pick where you are and then go about five hours out from where you are, and that's kind of your initial territory. Going back to that, if you lived in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and you'd had $200,000, you'd be looking for probably 
a 50 to 100 space park within five hours of there, which would take you almost everywhere. It would take you across six states, Kansas City, Indianapolis, Memphis, Chicago, pretty, pretty big footprint. But that's where most people begin. Now, if you live in California, for example, five hours won't get you out of California traditionally. So then the problem right. is, what do you do? You, you're going to probably skip over California and... It, you know, California has has very, very low cap rates is one of its big issues in real estate. So a lot of Californians have to then literally, they can't drive to a park. They, they have to fly there. But for the rest of America, it's, it's typically about a five-hour radius of your house. Uh, one of the trends that I follow and, and try to see how this impacts the rest of the economy is the 70 70- million baby boomers retiring over the next 15 years. What impact do you think it will have on the mobile home park industry? Well, the uh, you know the baby boomers are already having a, a big impact in, in both. You know, you've got 10,000 of them a day retiring, and that phenomenon goes on for another decade and a half. So that's a lot of people. And I, I myself right. am a baby boomer, and most of my friends are baby boomers, so it's a segment of the population I, I know pretty well. Uh, when most right. people retire, what do they do? Well, they tend to either want to downsize, which often makes a mobile home park material, or they want to go travel around, which makes them RV park material. So that, that phenomenon has been really powering up occupancy in both mobile home parks and RV parks. And I don't see that changing, again, for about another 15 years. You know, the the if you've not been in a mobile home, if you go online and look at the modern mobile homes that people are buying, it looks nothing like what you think from what you saw on TV. They look just like a single-family home, not hardly any different. So the product has really gotten good over time. So is the RV product. I mean, the RVs of today are light years ahead of RVs of 20 years ago. So both are attractive to boomers, and they're getting a lot of sales out of it. We're, we're getting a lot of traffic in our parks from retiring boomers, and you know the RV industry's sales have skyrocketed even here in the uh, Great Recession era because there's so many people retiring right now. I mean, the, if you go to any old RV dealership, you're going to see a gazillion people in there who look old, and that's what's right. going on. It's all these boomers, and when they buy these RVs, they all end up in RV parks every night. So it, it is having a big impact. You've talked about your investment model being a mobile home park turnaround strategy when you purchase the park. Can you share how you execute the strategy? Sure. You know, first thing we do when we buy a park is we do what we call secure the property. And by that, I mean, we, we acknowledge that the former owner may have done some bad things, but we're not we're not continuing on with that. For example, you know, under our, when we own it, anyone who enters that as an adult has to be, have a credit and criminal screening. We do not allow registered sex offenders. I mean, we, we, we put the brakes on, you know, what's been going on as far as people moving in. And then we enact what we call no pay, no stay, which means if you don't pay your rent, we evict you. It's nothing personal. It's just we're trying to run a business. We also enact what's called no play, no stay, which means, you know, you have to play by the rules of being a good citizen in the, in the community or you have to go. And right off the bat, you're going to find a, a certain percent are going to fail one of those two. Either they can't bear, the, bear to pay the rent every month, even though they have the money, they just don't want to do it, or they refuse to behave, right? They have, you know, right. just a wild party till three in the morning every day and God knows what. So we, we have to remove those folks. So initially, our occupancy typically goes down because we have to remove the folks who don't want to 
to be our residents. Meanwhile, while we're getting rid of them, we're going in, we're typically putting in a brand new entrance, some landscaping, road repair, streetlight enhancement, all the stuff that nice people want to see, such that once we have the exodus of the folks out who won't pay and won't, won't behave, we can then attract nice people who do want to pay their rent and do want to behave into those spots. You know, you can feel it in the movie when you do a turnaround on a park where suddenly you get on all eight cylinders because suddenly you'll see everybody else cleaning up their own yards and their own homes. And then, you know, you've, right. you've made it. So you, you have to be the leader. But to, traditionally, at some point in the movie, since they own their own homes, they see that you mean business and you actually are cleaning it up. And then they say, oh, well, if he's going to clean it up, I'm going to clean it up too. And that's a good right. part of the movie. That, that moment can happen three months in, six months in, eight months in. You don't know. But you, once you've hit that level, then, then it's easy to get to the end zone. Typically, if you work at it, within about a year, you can have everybody paying, everybody behaving. Then you go into more of a marketing phase to fill the vacant lots. So that's that's right. up to bat next. And then you keep fine-tuning the park and raising the rent and getting it all perfect, and then you're pretty much done. And, and that, that whole process can take in some parks a year and in some parks, you know, three years. It just depends. One of the other niches that piqued my interest, too, was self-storage. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that niche and why you chose to invest in them? Sure. We, we, we own, in our inside of our parks, about 400 self-storage units. So we've got self-storage in many of these properties. You know, self-storage is, again, the closest relative to mobile home parks that there is. There are about 50,000 self-storage uh, facilities against about, you know, nearly 50,000 mobile home parks. They have this roughly the same operating expense. You typically own land. Now, in self-storage, if people rent, they don't own the unit they have but they don't live there. They're very, very similar. You know, you have a live-in manager. The way the manager's compensation is very similar. The big difference between storage and mobile home park is simply the fact that storage supply is unlimited because people can build new ones, but you can't build any new parks. That's one big difference between the two. You've got a issue in self-storage where roughly the national average is 10% of the market turns over a month in self-storage, which is a lot. Mobile home parks, it costs about 5000 to move the home, so those people don't move at all. So that's why between between the two niches, we, we have favored mobile home park, and that's what we really focused on. But self-storage is a very, very close cousin to mobile home park. Very interesting. Well, I really love that you value financial education, and for listeners that are interested, on the website CREUniversity.com, you have a library of powerful informational courses, how to invest in mobile home parks, RV parks, outdoor billboards, and cell storage facilities. And then you also teach a mobile home park boot camp. Can you uh, give the listeners some more information about that mobile home park boot camp? Absolutely, MC. You know, basically Dave and I, when we started out buying parks, even though we didn't even know each other back 20 years ago, uh, we started writing little booklets about how the industry works because back then there was nothing on the industry in existence. So we were actually creating the beginnings of how these parks function because up till then it was basically... No one ever even talked to each other. So a lot a lot of people who bought parks liked our little books. So we, right. we kept writing more, and we compiled them together in a much larger book, which became what's called the Home Study Course. And then from there, we started doing boot camps. 
and we've we've really had a lot of fun. It's always been a hobby. That's why our prices are are low. We don't do any expensive coaching and mentoring and stuff. We, we do it basically to give the industry factual knowledge. It's had a lot of benefits. I mean, we had New York Times there. They loved it. They wrote a big glowing article back in 2014. We've had a lot of news channels there. Different people, appraisers, banks, manufacturers. Basically, we we do it like a college class. It's a three day immersion weekend, and all we do is talk about mobile home parks about 12 hours a day and it's there's no hype it's just literally just all facts and I think people in America today find that refreshing because there's so much BS that goes on in the world out there they kind of like having something that has absolutely no BS so it's just it's just a chance for people to learn the industry based completely on the truth with no hype and you know it's got a great following we sell out just about every event we do and it's it's pretty much been by word of mouth so it's been it's been great but you know we've had a tremendous amount of fun doing it so we've probably uh, you know been the biggest beneficiary which has really become a really nice hobby i've seen also that there's quite a number of students that have shared the su- success stories too and actually have been sharing them in, in some pretty large publications so it's definitely something to look into yeah, I mean, we uh, traditionally, about every month, we'll do what we call a lecture series where we'll, we'll have somebody who's bought a park or more than one park. I think our next lecture series is a guy out of the Dallas area who's up now to, I think he owns five parks. But yeah, it, it's, again, you know, part of it is, I think we're good teachers, but also is the industry, again, is like the Wild West. There's still a lot of opportunity right now. If you fast forward 20 years from now when most of the moms and pops have died and most of the parks are institutionally owned, you know, we may not even do a boot camp at that point because it wouldn't be very much fun but right right now it's literally like a bunch of pioneers going out their covered wagons into the into the you know the land rush or something and as long as you don't fall off your wagon and the horse doesn't trip uh you typically can come home with something pretty decent one habit that i've observed from very wealthy and successful people is that they're always studying new subjects and learning new skills so what are you currently studying and what new skills are you currently learning well, that's a great question, MC. You know, I read voraciously. I've always read. I've read back when I was at Stanford. I read a lot of different topics. I follow a lot of news stories because, you know, to, to really be good as an investor, you have to know all the different trends going on simultaneously. So I'm, I'm always reading, not typically one topic. I'm reading a lot of different topics. Like I'll have 10 or 20 books I'm reading simultaneously. I'll read a chapter of that one, then the next one. I mean, I'm here in my office. i got a stack of magazines about eight feet tall that I go through. Uh, probably, probably the main biggest thing I'm focusing on right now, to be honest with you, which has nothing to do with investing, is just trying to lose some weight, get a little healthier. That's my key, key problem right now. If I left my own devices, I would never leave my office. I would just be on the phone and read and write all day long. And then, let's say, jump in my car and go out to mobile home parks and live a very unhealthy lifestyle doing that. So I'm trying trying to like uh, get a little, a little more moderation, trying to get, trying to get my uh, weight and my uh, lifestyle a little healthier here. That, that's my... Probably my main focus here right now at the start of 2016. Yeah, it's been it's actually been my main focus too. I've also seen that you love reading biographies. What biography or book would you recommend to my listeners? I tell you, you know, I read I read a ton of biographies. Probably for for real estate investing, my favorite biography is called "The Man Who Bought the Waldorf," which is a story of Conrad Hilton. It's a fascinating yes. story for many reasons, but the main reason I won't bore you with it that I like the book is, you know, in the, at the start of the book, you think the guy is doing great, right? Because he built all these right. high rises across America. The problem is he did them in the 20s, and then he loses everything in the Depression. I mean, he loses everything. 
And so right. when you're reading the book, you're kind of shocked because you didn't expect that, right? Because you're kind of thinking, well, how in the world is Hilton a brand today when he was wiped out in, in 1929? And then, so I, I found the book interesting because the guy could kill himself. He could have just rolled up in a ball. He could have become a pessimistic guy. But instead, he said, you know what? This isn't going to hold me back. And so he just basically started from scratch and did it again. And so I thought that was pretty interesting. It's kind of like, you know, the Steve Jobs. Jobs biography, right? Only about seventy years earlier. Same kind of deal. He, he he built he built a brand. He thought he was set for life, and then he lost everything. But rather than give up, he did it all over again. And the second version was much much better than the first. I mean, right. one, one of his quotes on the second version was that he had learned is you never build anything. You just wait for a recession and buy it cheap. That's how he came, you know, his early hotels he built himself, but like when he bought the Waldorf, he bought he bought things out of out of recessions at a low price. But that's my all time favorite real estate bio, I think. That's a great lesson too. Are there any other lessons that you've learned along your journey regarding investing and building successful businesses? Well, well I probably have a little funny quotes, MC. One is before you can have return on capital, you have to have return of capital, which means don't do anything too crazy risky because if you're trying to get a 30% return but you lose all your money, you didn't accomplish anything, right? So that, that's right. one. Another, another one that I think all the time is time kills deals, which means if you're going to do anything, go do it. All right. Typically in real estate, if you delay, you're going to miss the opportunity. You know, if you wait until Monday to call someone that you could have called Friday over the weekend, they might sell to somebody else or die or who knows what. So that, that's, right. that's, a, that's another quote. I have a quote hanging on my wall in my office here. It says that problems are only opportunities in work clothes. That was by Kaiser, the steel industrialist, and he liked to buy manufacturing plants that weren't doing well and fixing them, which we do in mobile home parks and we like to buy things that are broken and fix them. But yeah, I, I right. just go on with quotes all day, MC, and different stuff. I mean, you know, the, the bottom line is that to succeed in real estate, it really isn't that hard, is, is, the, is the sad truth. Uh, right. But you just have to do it intelligently. And a lot of people, they jump into it without learning what they're doing, and, and, and it blows up. But it's really, I mean, to get a 20% cash-on-cash return, all you have to have is a three-point spread between the cap rate and the, and the financing interest rate. And that's not that hard. Business is wondrously simplistic. And that's, I think, the reason why more folks have made, you know, a million bucks in real estate than any other niche, right? The first millionaire in America was John Jacob Astor back in the 1850s, and he did it by buying land in what is now Manhattan. You know, real estate is a very solid base to, to work from if you just follow the basic rules. And the roadmap was laid out all the way back from John Jacob Astor. There's been like a hundred, hundred over a 100-year playbook on how to do real estate properly. So as long as you do it properly, it's kind of hard to screw it up. Yeah, I think a lot of folks try to overcomplicate things. Well, you know, MC, I think what, hap what one problem that people have is they're always thinking like consumer products. So people are thinking, oh, well, I want to I build a... a Phone. I need something new and different and something that no one's ever thought of before. And in real estate, that typically doesn't work. You want to put your boring hat on because you don't you don't have to, to reinvent the wheel. I mean, I see people right. doing some crazy real estate stuff, and it always bombs because you didn't have to get so edgy. You know what I mean? I mean, if you want to build a house, you know, let's not build a house with no bathroom. 
right? I mean, people like a bathroom. You don't have to be that different. But it, you know, even in restaurants, people today are, are coming up with new gastronomical creations that I don't even like eating that are super spicy or strange. You know, let's put some octopus and uh, mashed potatoes. I, I mean, that might work in restaurants, but in real estate, you know, just stick with the basics. Just basic blocking and tackling and, you know, putting in some effort and finding a good property. Good due diligence is hugely important. Sensible financing. But, you know, if, if you're not a risk taker, if you don't, if you're not a creative person, real estate's perfect because it doesn't seem to reward people to do goofy stuff. So if you cannot pass on any money to your children or grandchildren and you were only allowed to pass down five principles to them to build wealth, what would they be? Well, the first principle would be that hard work is the key, right, in anything you do. If you're, if you're going to look for real estate or any, if you want to succeed at anything, you've you got to put in the effort or you can't possibly get anywhere. So that would be probably rule, rule number one. Rule number two would be the concept that two key items in any business are to sell, 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 and cut, cut, cut. That was not my motto. That was the motto of, of Chainsaw Al Dunlap, the famous uh, turnaround artist from the 1930s up through, I think, the 1990s. 60s. That was his motto. I think that's important. I think that the old Benjamin Franklin quote that diligence is the mother of good fortune means basically due diligence is super important. Anything you do, don't just jump into it. Do a lot of scientific research on it. I think another item would be simply you know to believe in yourself and don't listen to others because right. I can't think of any great business that was ever started by somebody who everyone said, oh yeah, that's a good idea or oh yeah, you, you should go do that. I don't see that in very many biographies, right? Only when I saw that every got any any positive feedback was old comrade Hilton, whose mother told him after he had his little tiny worthless hotel in Cisco, Texas, Contrad, if you want to launch big ships, you gotta go where the water's deep. Gotta go to the big city. So but Typically, when you start a business, all you hear are negatives and naysayers and that kind of a stuff. And then probably the the fifth item is you know, most people succeed when they've got a higher purpose, not just making money. It doesn't have to be a religious higher purpose, but it has to have a some something more to it than money. So if if it is because you feel like you're building, a, you know, an industry, but I mean, don't don't just be in stuff for the money. Because if you look at most most of the biographies you'll read, the people who do the best feel like they're trying to accomplish something beyond dollars and cents. So at some point, you've got all the money you need. And if all you wanted was money, then what's the purpose of life once you make some money? So, you know, get, in some, you know, get involved in things that you're really interested in, you're passionate about, that you get more out of it than just money. Because doing stuff just for money just doesn't seem to work. So I guess, I guess those would be my five, let see. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing them. So how can my listeners learn more about you, your education company, your mobile home park boot camps, and other projects that you are involved in? Sure, MC. The, the two spots, just in general, they can go to CREUniversity.com. That stands for Commercial Real Estate University.com. And the other is they can just go to MHU.com. That's our main website. That's that's our mobile home website. It's it's so gigantic anymore. I think we get 20,000 viewers a day, I think. It's a, it's a crazy oh, wow. amount. And you just simply Google my name. I mean, I show up, I think, on Wikipedia and God knows where. I'm not, I'm not hard to find. Anyone who wants to, to read anything, any of the things I've written, uh, you don't have to go very far to find me. I'm kind of all over the Internet. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge and your experience and your journey. It was extremely interesting and very informative. Well, th thanks, MC, for having me. Again, I really appreciate it. I think it's a, it's a great mission to spread wisdom to, to everyone on real estate. You know, it's, it's done great for myself. It's done great for my partner. And it can pretty much do great for almost anyone if you apply yourself.
Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for joining me and my guest, Frank Rolf, on today's show. I hope you found the show very interesting and intriguing. And the next time that you drive past a mobile home park, a RV park, a self-storage unit facility, as well as a billboard next to the side of the highway, you'll have a completely different perspective and view on these vehicles. Thank you so much for all the, the support that I have received from launching the podcast. Thank you for your emails, your reviews, and also your comments. I really appreciate it. It's been quite a learning experience for me, a very, very good one, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you've gotten a ton of value from the guests that we have on the show and some of the ideas that they have shared. Just a reminder that you can find all of our past shows, our show notes, and recommended resources, and join our community at cashflowninja.com. During the first two months of our podcast, we're giving away a $500 Visa gift card, All you have to do to get entered into the drawing is go to cashflowninja.com forward slash iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Please help us spread the word of our show. If you feel that our show has provided valuable content and information, please share it with family, friends, and anyone that you feel will enjoy it. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. You have been listening to the Cashflow Ninja with your host, MC Laubscher. The podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Today's show notes and resources are available on our website, CashflowNinja.com. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objective, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.